Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Just before midnight on May 19, 2007, police were called to the Alaskan Hotel to respond to a disturbance in room 315. The room's only guest, a sailor from the USS Bunker Hill, was heard screaming through the door, Help! Stop! He shouted, Get me out of here! He appeared to be trapped in the room. Responding officers said they heard more than one person inside. Later, a guest in the room directly underneath gave her account of the events. I remember hearing yelling, but kind of just assumed that it was coming from the bar downstairs, she said. We hear glass shatter from above, and within moments, our window within our hotel room just shatters. Before anyone could get inside, the sailor jumped out the third floor window. When the police broke down the door, Officer Chris Guilford was met with a horrible scene. The walls were covered in blood, Guilford said. There was, it looked like, something very bad had happened in there, and I didn't know what it was, but it didn't look normal. The sailor survived, but hotel owner Betty Adams said that when she entered the room, she found something she never expected to see. On the wall, the sailor had written one word, help. He wrote it in his own blood. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Room 315 isn't the only haunted space in the 110-year-old Alaskan hotel in Juneau, Alaska. In fact, according to people who've stayed there, and even the people who own it, just about every corner of the historic hotel has some kind of unexplained activity. But when it opened, the Alaskan hotel was all glitz and glamour, a shining beacon in one of the territory's richest gold rush towns. Today, Juneau is home to just about 30,000 people. The capital of Alaska sits on land originally belonging to the native Klingit tribe. In 1880, a discovery of gold set off a gold rush and led to the founding of the city later that year. Joe Juneau was one of the original discoverers of that gold, but the city wasn't named for him right away. First it was Harrisburg, then it was Rockwell. Miners voted to name the city Juneau in 1881, allegedly after Joe Juneau bribed his voters with liquor. Juneau is located on the Alaskan mainland, but is surrounded by so much extreme terrain that it's only reachable by boat or plane. Those first prospectors set up camps and lived in boarding houses, but no real hotel existed until the Alaskan opened its doors in 1913. It was just a year after Alaska became an official United States territory. The Alaskan was built by entrepreneur Jules Caro and brothers James and John McCloskey, miners who had struck it rich in the Canadian caribou just over the border in British Columbia. The hotel opened with a grand gala on September 16, 1913. According to Jeff Belanger's World's Most Haunted Places, the management sent out invitations for the gala event that said, at 6 p.m., the management will formally unlock the doors and the keys will then be attached to a toy balloon which will carry them out of sight. From the moment the doors swing open, never to close, the hotel will be for the accommodation of guests. At the time, the Alaska Daily Empire described it as one of the most important business ventures of this kind in the North. According to the newspaper, 
the gala attracted a very large attendance of people anxious to inspect the place that had been talked about so much and to take part in the festivities that were to follow. The hotel arranged free ferries to bring people in from nearby islands for the event as well. According to one contemporary newspaper, everyone seemed to be having a good time, and the hotel's register had several pages filled with the names of well-known people of both sides of the Gastineau Channel. An account in the National Registry of Historic Places Inventory said that a pioneer resident, then a teenager, Trevor Davis, recalls his observation of the exciting grand opening. The McCloskey brothers milling among a well-dressed crowd, shaking magnums of champagne, the corks aimed at the newly installed chandeliers and the gleaming ceiling of the lobby. Three stories tall, the Alaskan Hotel made a grand impression, with Mount Juno rising up behind the structure. Inside, the main floor was primarily restaurants, separate dining areas for men and women, and the bar. The top two floors still have the original 46 guest rooms, some of which have private baths and some of which have shared bathrooms. The Alaska Daily Empire reported that the finish of the entire lower floor is in mahogany, matching the elegant mahogany fixtures and furniture. The furniture is all leather upholstered. The entire floor is well illuminated. Brass chandeliers and tasteful design and art fixtures for the electric lights are everywhere in evidence. From the nearby steamship docks, it was easy to see what the newspaper described as a large electric sign blazing forth, which could be seen far down the Gastineau Channel. Inside the hotel, through the doors that never closed, things took a dark run rather quickly. According to the Alaskan Hotel, the high fashion and glitz was a paltry concealment for the legal prostitution and sale of illicit substances that went on there throughout its history. At the time, men far outnumbered women in the territory, and sex work was legal in Alaska until the 1950s, just before it became a state. Rumors also swirled that money laundering was happening in the hotel. In 1918, five years after the Alaskan opened, the territory passed its own ban on alcohol. According to the hotel's history, the McCloskey brothers decided to turn the bar into a cafe for sodas during that period, like most speakeasies of its time. The hotel was renamed the Northlander in 1960, and the bar previously on the first floor was moved to the basement. In a guide to the notorious bars of Alaska, Doug Vandegraft wrote, the Northlander Bar was known by many locals as the Snake Pit, where all manner of humanity, such as prostitutes, drug dealers, swindlers, musicians, and dirty politicians, came to drink and rub elbows. In 1977, after a police raid, the bar was shut down and its liquor license revoked. Shortly after, the building was condemned. That same year, current owners Betty and Mike Adams bought the hotel with the intention to restore it to its original name and its original look. In Thousand Ridge Haunts, Misty Wright wrote that elements of the hotel are so well-preserved that longtime Juno residents comment on how little the place has changed. The following year, in 1978, the Alaskan Hotel was included on the National Register of Historic Places. In 1981, Betty and Mike reopened the hotel for business and quickly restored the institution to its former glory, attracting celebrities like John Wayne, Ken Kesey, Ted Danson, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers as guests. 
According to its history, the hotel's style, as noted by its ornate string course, Victorian bay windows and plush interior, is decidedly done in the late Victorian Queen Anne style. In Alaska Fodor's travel guide today, the flocked wallpaper, red floral carpets, and Tiffany windows are reminiscent of the hotel's original Gold Rush era opulence. While it was the Northlander, the owners installed a bar and cabaret in the basement, and later hot tubs, which don't appear to currently be in use. In 1998, Charles Kevin Wynn died at the hotel, having been found floating face down in a basement hot tub. In 2017, Clarence Stanley Milton III was found dead in his room. People report seeing at least one of those men still at the hotel today. Charlie is now believed to be a poltergeist who haunts the basement, who is especially focused on pretty women, according to Joshua Adams, son of owners Betty and Mike Adams, who works at the hotel. He's definitely not the only presence at the Alaskan Hotel, though. Visitors and staff both report often encountering cold spots throughout the building. According to Tom Ogden's book, Haunted Hotels, guests have reported feeling an invisible spirit, presumed to be female, stroke their faces or sit beside them on the bed. In general, rooms on the south side of the hotel seem to have the most activity, though it's not known why. James Devereaux in Spirits of Southeast Alaska reports that reflections of ghostly figures in historical garb have been reported in the hotel's mirrors, especially in the bar area. Others have spotted orbs floating in the bar and on the stage. According to the haunted places, beer mugs have also been reported moving on their own as if they were pushed by someone. One of the more curious phenomena people report experiencing at the Alaskan is time slips. Elva Bontrager claims to have experienced this in the late 1980s while visiting the first floor bar. According to Bourne Deal's book, Haunted Inside Passage, she was on her way to use the restroom when she was struck by a painting of two women. One was a tall, scantily clad, sour-faced blonde. The other was an attractive, dark-haired woman with a small scar on her cheek, sitting behind a small green table. Elva assumed the two were prostitutes. She went home and replicated the painting of the two women. When Elva returned to the hotel a few weeks later, the painting was gone and the hallway was painted a different color. She also saw changes in the restroom with a modern toilet replacing the pole chain model she had seen previously. When she asked the bartender about the changes, he had no idea what she was talking about and had no memory of such a painting ever hanging in that hallway. When she described the painting to the acquaintance she was at the bar with, the other woman said she'd been told by staff that the tall blonde woman was a ghostly presence in the hotel's hallways. The most popular ghost story about the Alaskan Hotel concerns a woman named Alice. According to legend, Alice came to Juno with a man, possibly her fiance or husband, and they took room 219 at the Alaskan sometime in the 1930s. Alice's man left for several weeks to look for mining work in the Yukon, or in some versions, he was a fisherman or whaler who went out to sea. Eventually, Alice ran out of money and wasn't able to continue paying for the room. Out of options, she decided to raise the money through sex work, a common occupation in the hotel at the time. Most tellings of the story say that when he returned, the heartbroken man murdered Alice in the hotel, either shooting her or bludgeoning her with a hatchet. In some versions of the story, he then hung himself in the same room. In others, he simply disappeared. 
According to one hotel employee interviewed by Jeff Belanger for World's Most Haunted Places, guests continually ask to be moved out of room 219. The man, Jake Good, said, Whenever I walk into room 219, I get goosebumps. It's cold in there all of the time for some reason. I personally think there are probably a couple of ghosts around here. I think the one in 219 is the only one that is frustrated or unhappy or tormented. I don't know. Some staff members say they've seen Alice sitting on the bed in room 218 and room 219. Others complain of feeling watched in that part of the hotel. According to Spirits of Southeast Alaska, a former housekeeper tells of cleaning the rooms only to return to find the towels and furniture rearranged and scattered about when there's no possibility that anyone could have entered to do so. Room 315 of the Alaskan Hotel is also said to be haunted. That room decorated with antiques and floral linens looks especially close to how it would have appeared when the hotel first opened. According to legend, a fisherman's girlfriend was once staying in room 315. As Haunted Inside Passage tells it, the man, suspicious his girlfriend might be cheating on him, desperately wanted to come into port. It was autumn, a time storms frequently buffet Juneau and turn the ocean deadly. Rather than staying anchored in a protected cove, the fisherman made a run for town and was lost to the stormy sea. It's said that during the first big storm each year, the fisherman's footsteps can be heard on the stairs. Room 315 is also the room where that sailor had an experience so intense that it caused him to jump out the window to escape. When asked about the room, according to Alaska Public Media, owner Betty Adams said, I just, it's creepy. You know, I've never seen anything, but I feel things. The Alaskan Hotel is a place I have yet to visit, though I will be there in just a few months. So I found someone who has been there and investigated it over a period of several days. Up next, I am thrilled to be joined by Katrina Weidman as we revisit her experiences and thoughts on this mysterious location. That's coming up after the break. I am joined by a very special guest, someone who I don't see enough, I will be honest, Miss Katrina Weidman. So welcome, Katrina. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, it's funny because a lot of the places that I cover on Haunted Road, I've actually been there and investigated. And the Alaskan Hotel is kind of literally one of the few that I have not. Yeah. Um, it's in one of four states I have not visited. And I'm actually going there in June with Strange Escape. So we have a cruise going there. We're there all day and like we get to investigate till like 11 at night. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about it. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no problem. So what strikes me about the Alaskan Hotel just kind of off the bat, it just kind of has a dark and ominous feel to it. And there's not a lot of, I mean, I think hauntings in general can kind of come off that way to people who aren't familiar to them or familiar with them. But for some reason, the Alaskan, I, I've never been there. I just don't get the greatest vibe from it, if that makes sense. Did you get that feeling when you went there? Yeah, it's definitely, it's an odd place. Um, do you know the town itself is, it's got a very cool vibe. We went right as their season ended. So it was pretty empty by the time we had gotten there for filming. Surprisingly warm. I wasn't, you know, prepared for that. I think, you know, you think Alaska, you think it's cold. And it, it wasn't. It was actually very beautiful and warm up there. 
But the overall vibe of the of the space is definitely one that's uneasy. I don't know that I would say it's bad, but there's definitely a level of, you know, I don't fully feel comfortable in this space. Right. And that's kind of what I mean. Like just just I think I, I rewatched a portion of the episode there. So uh, basically you and Jack, Jack Osborne, you uh, filmed there and investigated there for the very first episode of Portals to Hell. So clearly a really interesting place to kick off the entire series with. So was that intentional or did you guys kind of pick the order after the fact? I'm not really sure why they decided to choose Alaska for the first one, because Jack and I had met beforehand to talk about Portals to Hell and you know, if we got along and if we wanted to move forward doing it together and everything. And then they were like, oh, we're going to do Alaska. And it took me like 22 hours to get there. You know, I live on the East Coast. Um, it was a little easier for Jack being on the West Coast, but it was definitely a, gosh, I don't, I don't even know what's the word for it. Like a slap in the face to do that one the, as the very first one. And I don't mean that as like a negative thing, but it was just, it was a really overwhelming location. So to have that be like the first time you're working with a brand new crew, a new teammate, it was like, wow, okay, we're going for it. (laughs) Like, you know, like this is pal in your face kind of location. But I don't, as far as like the production side, I don't know why they took, oh, you know what? I do know why. I think it had to do with weather because we were going to be filming over, let me see, we started in October. So October, November, December. And I think like the first week or two of January. And so, you know, Alaska, weather-wise, wouldn't have been really great to if we waited any longer. So I think it was more a logistical thing of let's just do it to, to you know, capitalize on some of that weather that they have right now. Yeah. And I mean, from a production standpoint, just, you know, being a producer, it it is like, it is kind of epic. You're like, we are going all the way to Alaska for our very <laughs> yeah. first case. Yeah. And it really did work. Like it did. And I mean, I remembered it ever since because I had not heard of the Alaskan Hotel before. And so a lot of the claims there were fairly recent um, and they also kind of seemed to really deeply affect people. Like, what can you remember just kind of struck you as something that they told you that just seemed kind of different from any other hauntings you'd been to before? Well, I think there's definitely layers going on there. There have been reports going back decades too, which is interesting. One of the reports, and I can't remember if they kept it in the episode or not. Um, and you know, yeah, as an investigator, you're shifting through rumors and hearsay, and it's it's always hard to tell, okay, this person's account, is this accurate or not? Did they make it up? Is it, how, how long has this been passed down, you know, kind of the whisper down the lane type of thing? Um, but one of the stories we had heard was that a woman, I think she she went into the bathroom, walked out, and when she walked out, she was in a different time period, you know, and that always struck me as interesting because you only hear about those type of experiences. Um, I mean, seldomly you hear of them. Uh, the other one I can think of that's really well known is Gettysburg. And I'm sure a lot of people, if they're into hauntings, they've heard of that story where the two admin, um, they got into the elevator at the at Gettysburg College. The elevator took them to the basement. And when the basement doors opened up, they were watching an entire Civil War hospital scene. You know, so you hear of these experiences, but they're they're not altogether common. Um, So that one really struck me, you know, assuming it's true and accurate. um, I I think that happened in the 80s, I want to say maybe the early 90s. 
And I think the other part of it was, you know, I mean, you're talking about a town where it was easy to cover things up, you know, and if there, and as a lot of these places, these um, hotels that were kind of there as a midpoint of stopover for workers, historically, it's not uncommon to find really bad stories coming out of those places. You know, so I think it was easy for people to cover things up there. That's at least what we have been told. And so a lot of the tragedies you're not going to find documented. So a lot of them are passed on orally. And, you know, I'm sure there's some exaggerations on some of those stories. Um, but we definitely did hear of murders. We heard about rapes. We heard about suicides. And then there's the element of Josh, who is a highly intelligent person, but I think there were some, you know, the way he was describing things happening in, in the hotel, it, it seemed like there was definitely a level that was more malevolent. Right. I was kind of fascinated by him. So if you've seen the episode of Portals, um, you'll be familiar with this gentleman. And I'm not sure. I think he's the owner's son. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll probably meet him. But he has a lot of experiences in the basement itself, it seems like. And the basement, according to him, uh, had not been used as a room for 20 years and someone had passed away there. And um, and th- and apparently, like I, I think women in particular have issues down there. Did you have that experience? We were working with a device. It was like a uh, motion detector device. And I think it also checked for ambient temperature. And we had that go off a couple times when I was down in the basement and it was me and our uh, one producer who she was also the director. So like, you know, both women downstairs in the basement. And that was really the biggest thing that happened was our motion detector kept going off and we couldn't find a cause for it. So currently unknown, you know, why that was happening. Um, Love that when you're investigating, they're like, this is where the women get messed with. And right, they're like, yeah. get down there. And you're like, here we go again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't. You know, experience-wise, I don't think we had anything that was off-the-wall scary. Like, it, it was a scary place just because of the vibe. But, it, you know, I don't, none of, nobody got thrown up against the wall. Nobody, you know, nothing like that. Right. And I think that's part of it, too, because you, you hear the stories, and there are, like, certain very notorious rooms. Um, yeah. You know, there is the one where that, that gentleman supposedly threw himself out the window, I believe. Yes. Um, and he really wanted to stay in a haunted room. Like, he asked... The owner. Did Jack sleep in that room? He did. Jack slept in that room. And, it, you know, kind of a, one of the sadder things we were told about Juno is that I guess their drug use per capita is fairly high. And so I think what the Alaskan has also seen is a lot of people suffering from addiction. So how it was said to us is like the gentleman who took his own life or jumped out. I think he survived, actually. Yeah, he survived. Um, but he jumped out of the window. Um, what was said to us is it's not altogether sh- surprising for that area, which is, you know, really unfortunate. But it seems like a, a pattern that certainly happens. Yeah. And I think that's important to think of, too, especially, you know, some of these things that happen in these locations. You sometimes do have to kind of take a, a darker, deeper dive into what it could be other than something paranormal. And yeah, uh, I do think that I feel like I've heard that just kind of in general in a lot of areas of Alaska. Like it's such a different atmosphere than we're used to. You know, they don't they have a very different daylight situation going yeah, on there. Yeah. 
Um, it's it's isolated. You know, I I used to date someone years ago who had lived in Alaska, and he said he just never quite got used to it. And uh, um, I think it's a beautiful place, and I think a, a lot of people love being there. But I could see that there are certain aspects of it that could wear on you. And I do think that might have something to do with, A, obviously some of these types of experiences, but also B, just kind of how people feel in a place like that. Like they might feel uneasy if they're not familiar or if they're visiting. Yeah. In the episode itself, it seemed like a lot of the the experiences they brought up were pretty extreme. But then it also seems like there's kind of just, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill paranormal activity. Maybe to you and me, we're like, oh, footsteps, knocks. Yeah. (laughs) But did you have anything like that happen? Or or do you remember people mentioning things like that that just kind of went on all the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the the overall vibe of our interviews and what we had been told about people that we couldn't interview was everybody knew it was haunted. All their workers knew. They might not have known when they first got hired, but they certainly found out soon enough. And, you know, it was kind of the like you said, the run in the mill activity of footsteps and voices and whispers and uneasiness and maybe a door closes. And shadow figures was big there, too. And I don't even think it was uh, shadow figures as in like a human shadow figure. It was like blobs of shadows people would see. And uh, we had experienced a couple of those things. I think we had some interesting EVPs that we got there. Definitely the uneasiness. We had footsteps a couple of times. I think one or two of them might be explainable. But there were definitely some things that popped up that didn't have explanations for us. But, you know, going back, it is, it's is—it's a really old building. You'll, you'll see when you get there, it's an old building. It's creaky. Uh, there's definitely room for error in that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, I think we'll probably have to be careful with that. I mean, we'll, we're going to be there with a, a pretty good-sized group. Obviously, we're splitting up and taking turns and going up and investigating. So um, I'm excited about that. But had, did they tell you, were there ever any employees who just kind of called it a day and had had enough and quit over the activity? Yeah, I believe so. I think very specifically they had told us about, I think it was a housekeeper who had had an experience and quit. Actually, I think it happened a bunch of times for them, but it was one of those things of, I don't know if they're phased by it anymore, you know, because it's happened to them a bunch of times where an employee has said something to them or a patron has said something to them. So I think they're just sort of like, yeah, is what it is, you know, like, Jack and I had, um, it's really funny, we reference this a lot. There was an investigation we did where, like, horrific things happened on this property, and they were having a really intense haunting. And when we would ask the owner about it, their response is always, is what it is. <laughs> we're, like, we're like, that's the best attitude to have, though. <laughs> like, is what it is. I don't know. I know. I actually, <laughs> back in Ghost Hunters days, we actually, uh, Britt Griffith and I used to say that all the time. We're like, it is what it is. Like, so what yeah. are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes there's no solution. Sometimes you just got to live through it. And I think that's, um, I think that's what the owners at the Alaskan are doing, you know, but I, I do think there's some, there's some other elements going on there. And Josh kind of leaned into that a little bit off camera, you know, that I, I kind of think there's been some intentional calling of things to that place. Okay. So I, he kind of talked, I don't know if he mentioned it when I was watching the episode or not, but there might've been some hint at that. Like, what did, what do you think that is? Do you think it's him per se, or do you think there's other people who did it? I think it's been both. And I work closely with Michelle Bellinger, who's a psychic medium and also an occultist. And she'll be the first one to tell you that 
just because you practice certain things doesn't mean it's bad. It's just the intention behind it. And I think in the case of the Alaskan, I don't know that every single person has had good intentions behind what they've been doing there. Yeah, we've stumbled on a few places like that, you know, especially when the activity kind of suddenly takes a turn. And Mm. I don't necessarily, like, I know we say intention, but I also think it's almost unintentional sometimes. Like, they're, they don't necessarily, I I think sometimes people underestimate the power of what they're asking for. You know Mm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, And like, in the, kind of with Josh in particular, I was very, he was such an interesting interview probably one of the most interesting interviews I've ever seen on a paranormal yeah. show. Oh, yeah. um, he just seemed very, there was a lot going on there. I'm sure you sense that in person, but uh-huh. um, he just seemed very in tune with the location itself. And like he, he said that someone died in his arms, right? And the, like Charlie was that his name. Yeah. In the hot tub in the basement. And so do you think Charlie is still there? He seems to think Charlie is very much still there. You know, it's hard to say because I think one of the drawbacks of doing television is that we don't always have enough time in these places. Like, I think sometimes to get a really accurate sense of a location, it would I, I would want to be there for like months at a time. And we just can't do that Um you know, so I'm I'm seeing these locations just as glimpses, really. My thought on it, just based off of my time there, I don't really know if Charlie is who Charlie says he is. It seemed more sinister than that. It seemed more malevolent and seemed more trickstery. And in my experience, those things are not human energies. Those are, you know, um, something a little different. Uh, but they, you know, we've certainly seen cases where those types of um, energies can pretend to be something else to kind of gain trust, gain access, ask for the invitation type of thing. If we're talking Catholicism, you know, that would, you know, a priest would label that a demon who's trying to gain your trust and access. You know, I don't know. You have, people can call it whatever they want. It's just to me, it felt like it had a, a deeper level than what Josh was talking about. And what a better way to kind of get through to Josh. Like, here's someone who literally died in his arms. And so, you know, he probably already feels a connection to that person in a way. And so, of course, if there is some something or someone there watching this happen, they know at that point, okay, if I present myself as Charlie, this person's going to be more trusting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really sad. There's some sad stories up there, um, especially, you know, the case of the rape that allegedly happened. We never found documentation of that. Um, but uh, of course, like, would you? You know what I mean? You probably would not find documentation of that because um, it would be one of those things that would be really easy to cover up and people would want to cover that up. And it also the time period we were told it happened in um many people would probably find it acceptable. Yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was wild. You know, it was kind of this, it was so funny because like, kind of going through the history, you know, it was meant to be this very kind of glamorous, beautiful hotel. And then, which I, it is, I think it's beautiful, but then it kind of just got taken over by the fact that there wasn't really a lot of people kind of looking over how things went. You know, there wasn't a lot of oversight. There weren't a lot of laws. It was very much kind of just every man for himself. 
Um, and like you were saying, a lot of uh, like money laundering and illegal things going on. And with that comes a lot of debauchery and, and very bad things and and deaths and hauntings, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. So, Leaves I a mean, strange, just, strange energy behind. Yeah, and I think that that energy is kind of affected by just the atmosphere of where it is. Like, I, I, I'm so curious to know. You know, when I... The only thing I can kind of relate it to is when we went to Iceland, um, which kind of has not a similar landscape, but like a similar climate where it's daylight. They When we went there, we went there during the midnight sun. And yeah. I felt kind of panicky almost the whole time because it never really equaled, you know, what I would experience at home as far as... Yeah. And it just never felt quite relaxing. And so... I wonder if just that kind of energy in general can affect the haunting there, especially when people are coming in and out and they're traveling from all over the world. Uh, and then you have that energy of all those people coming in and touring and they're coming in on cruise ships and they're checking it out. And then all of a sudden one day it just stops. The season ends. Yeah. Like, do you think that does something? Because you've probably went there at the best time, if you really think about it that way. We we did. Yeah. And we were there in October and it was like right as their season had ended. And, you know, the locals were there and there were what did they call them? Drifters, I guess is what they called them, that they get a lot of drifters that time of year. You know, people maybe looking for some work or people looking for where do they go from here kind of thing. So they stop over in Juneau. And that was the atmosphere is pretty. It wasn't desolate, but it was just, you know, you can tell you're in a touristy area and there's like no tourists. So it's just like, oh, this is interesting, you know, because um, even places like, you know, Lake George in New York, that's a pretty touristy area. But even going there in the off season, there was still a good amount going on, you know, where I felt like Juno was just like, oh, there's like there's nobody here. Yeah, there's really no way there. Either. I mean, you obviously boat or plane, but once it gets yeah. kind of gnarly outside, you're not going to make it there that way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it was definitely easier shooting wise and investigation wise to be there when the foot traffic was lower because you don't get the ambient noise from outside. I'm sure it gets a little rowdy on the main stretch there when they're in season um, and we didn't have to deal with any of that. So that was definitely you know, a better way to go for for our purposes, for sure. Years ago, we uh, filmed on Mackinac Island in uh. February, January, something I would not recommend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was not the time to be there. It's a beautiful place. But one thing that we heard from the locals is that people would go there in the winter to hide from any number yeah. of things. The, you know, some people go there to write. Some people would go there because they were literally like felons <laughs> on the road. Oh, you know? wow. And I don't know, Juno just kind of strikes me as kind of a similar vibe where that kind that time of year, you probably have some really interesting characters kind of yeah. knowing about. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's kind of like how things were alluded to us, you know? And I know Jack talked to the cops and everything, so they kind of like let us in on what, I guess maybe the seedier side of the town. That's so interesting. I love that. Well, I can't wait to visit it. I love having more insight. This this actually was completely by chance that this podcast episode happened just two months before I'm heading that way. It was just kind of, we you know, we plan these pretty far in advance. So um, I'm really excited about it. So 
I'm really glad you were able to join us and and tell us a little bit about your experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I hope your trip goes well. Um, <laughs> I'll keep you hopefully posted. Hopefully, nothing too crazy happens. Yes. <laughs> so, tell us, like, what are you up to? What? How can people find you? I know you have new music out, which I'm obsessed yeah. with. So, please tell everyone. Yeah. So, definitely on all the major socials: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. At Katrina Weidman, my last name spelled We ID Man. Um, and as far as current projects, um, I'm doing a YouTube series called Travel the Dead, and that is very much the peek behind the curtain of what it is to be an investigator. It's me and my best friend Heather Taddy, who we met on Paranormal State. So she and I very much started our paranormal careers together, and these are the private cases that we're asked to do. And um, so you're kind of getting an inside look at what it's like to do that. Yeah, I love her. That's great. I've actually watched a bit of it and it's it's really something. So people need to go check it out. I Thank love it. You. Yeah, it's it's really raw and gritty, but we didn't want it to, it, you know, we we just wanted it to be what it was, which is paranormal investigating is raw and gritty. Like, <laughs> so we don't want to pretty it up or anything. So um, it's a very intimate uh, doc series. And then my music for people who might not know, that's, uh, my background is in music and theater. So when we were kids, paranormal investigating wasn't a job. So like we all kind of had other avenues before I think this found us. And mine was music and theater. So I put out my debut single as a solo artist on March 31st. And that's called Suffer Me. And you can download it and stream it, Spotify, iTunes, all your major platforms. And then um, a second single is coming out in a few weeks. That's awesome. I know. I yeah. love whenever we get together and Adam Barry is there, I just kind of disappear while the uh, two of you talk musical theater talk musical theater yeah probably because i'm obsessed with he was in it's my favorite musical it's called bat boy and he was in that mm -hmm. and so i'm always like fascinated that he got to be in that show because it's such a great show yeah. i love it i have the the most talented wonderful friends i love it so um <laughs> well thank you it was really great chatting with you and i really hope we run into each other in person soon i'm sure we will we're always kind of passing by so yeah uh, hopefully i see you very soon yeah absolutely um well i can't wait to hear about your trip to the alaskan all right thank you okay see you amy The Alaskan Hotel feels like a genuine time warp, so I suppose it's no surprise that time slips are one of the reports there. It's where you find a hotel that old that has changed hands so few times and where so little has changed within its walls. The furnishings, the feel, all seem to be almost as it was the day it opened. It makes you wonder if that's why many restless souls don't feel compelled to leave or go elsewhere. The Alaskan has become their beacon, never wavering, never changing, and seemingly always there. I'm excited to visit there soon myself. I'll report back on what, if anything, happens. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni with additional research by Taylor Hagedorn and Cassandra De Alba. This show is edited and produced by Rima Elkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Learn more about this show over at grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, 
Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.